0: You should go for it, because if you don't go for it, you may regret it the rest of your life. You may be bitter and angry later that you let your parents browbeat you into a safer path. But you must go into it with eyes open. You must know how tough it's going to be. You can't expect that you're going to make it, that you're going to be discovered, that you're going to be winning Sundance at the age of 25. You must understand how difficult it's going to be financially. And also, you must be prepared to change careers when you're 30 or 35. Give it a shot. If you really feel called to do it, if you really feel like this is who you are, this is what you have to do, which is what all of these artists told me, this is who I am. I knew this is who I was from an early age. Then at least give it a shot. But be prepared for what you're going to face and be prepared for the fact that, you know, once you give it your shot, you may realize that... It's not going to work out. And deciding not to be an artist is as legitimate and often as difficult and brave a decision as deciding to be an artist in the first place is.
1: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is author William DeRezowitz. His 2015 book, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life, was a bestseller and he's also been the winner of a National Book Critics Circle Award for Excellence in Reviewing. Bill's latest book is The Death of the Artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech. In it, he interviews more than 100 working artists, musicians, writers, and visual artists, about how they manage to keep going in a creative economy of diminishing rewards. In our conversation, Bill talked about how it's simply a lie that the digital revolution has made it easier to be a professional artist. In fact, it's never been harder. We also both shared our anxieties about our own personal creative economies and the irony that the more experienced we get, the less money there is to
0: pay the bills.
1: William Derezowicz, welcome to The Unspeakable Podcast.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me on.
1: Congratulations on your book, The Death of the Artist. The book is about how the digital economy has radically changed the whole picture for people who make a living in the arts and not for the better, to say the least. I feel like there could have been a version of this book written at any number of points in cultural history from the end of the Renaissance to, I guess, Uh the advent of television. And you do go into some of that. But as you rightly point out, one big difference now is that even though things have never been harder, we're being told that they've never been easier. So maybe you can start by talking about that double message and why it's so pernicious.
0: Yes, um, it is very pernicious. And it's really what motivated me to write the book. You know, I used to think that we took it for granted that it's hard to be an artist. It's always hard to be an artist. I mean, that's definitely true. It's varied in terms of how hard, but it's always been hard. And yet, you know, 20, 25 years ago, you know, I think it really started before Web 2.0 and the platforms. It really started with Apple's very insidious uh, ad campaign from the late 90s, where they started to take out those billboards with Kerouac and Einstein and Mm -hmm. the Galt, right? Because they were making these really expensive machines that were much more expensive than their competitors, the iMac at that moment. And they needed to convince people that they should buy them. And the way they convinced them was that Apple was the brand for Creative people for artists. That's right.
1: That's right. You are not a square, if you are right. An
0: Apple. And of course, this being America, it turned out that everybody was a creative artist. That was Apple's message: like you have something unique and wonderful to express. All you need is our expensive tools, and you can express them. Right. And then, not long after that, the internet. The well, the internet was already here, but sort of social media, internet, and Napster and Spotify and all the platforms that also were selling themselves in terms of just put your stuff out there and you know, you can be one of these people that you've been reading about who makes a living doing what you love, if not becomes a, you know, a viral star who we all envy, a, a minor or major celebrity. And that story was amplified and amplified and amplified. I mean, in the wake of, of Silicon Valley promulgating this, arose this whole sort of create, I think it's actually called the creativity self-help industry, right? It's self-help. <laughs> that sounds true. like
1: three unappealing things, but okay.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes it is. It's three unappealing things, but it's, you know, it's these self-help books that tell you that you're creative and here's how you're going to be creative. And there were coaches and seminars and workshops. And now there's that horrible master class that's selling <laughs> people on the same dream. And Journalists took this up. I mean, Wired was writing articles about this and Fast Company and the Times Magazine published some things like this. That's that story that there's never been a better time to be an artist when the truth is, in some ways, there's never been a worse time to be an artist.
1: Yeah, and I'm going to try to keep myself from turning this into like a a therapy slash wine session with you. But, um, you know, as someone who's trying to pivot myself, by starting this podcast. I found this book both vindicating and also sort of anxiety producing. You know, I'm sitting here recording you in my apartment, trying to focus on this conversation while also worrying that I'm getting the recording right, that the dog won't bark, that FedEx won't ring the doorbell in the middle of the interview, that we won't get drowned out by construction noise outside. And I'm doing this, you know, I love doing this. This has been a really fulfilling endeavor, but I'm doing it because I can't get paid what I used to get paid for for writing. But in order to do this, I have to put in easily as much time into promotion as I put into talking with people like you, preparing to talk with you, reading your book, thinking about what we're going to discuss. And if I was going to do social media properly, it would amount to a full-time job. So I I wonder, can we just talk about, like, (laughs) when did social media enter into the equation? Because the period of time you're talking about, that wasn't even part of it yet. So, like, that's really even up to the ante.
0: Right. Well, let's follow the logic of this out. Okay. So the internet enables you to reach the audience directly. It enables you to circumvent the gatekeepers. This is part of the pitch, but it's also true. You don't have to get a publisher to publish your book. Then social media comes along and it gives you all of these tools. I mean, I guess before social media, people had websites.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. And did anyone go to them? I mean, we thought, we thought maybe somebody might go to the
0: website. Well, I, you know what? I mean, I think, uh, I don't know about authors, but for bands, people would go to their websites Until the platforms came along. That's true, yes. Right? right. So now everyone's on the platforms. So the platforms give you these enhanced tools for reaching everybody. It also means you're at the mercy of the platforms. At the same time, though, it's drawn huge numbers of people into this endeavor, right? Multiples of the number that used to do this kind of thing for these very reasons, right? Which means that you have to stand out from this vast crowd. You write books, I write books. Every year now, well over a million books are self-published. Wow. Self-published every year. And they're comparably ridiculous numbers for music and for independent film. It's not millions in independent film, but like, you know, Sundance accepts one percent fil- of the films that are submitted to it. So, so in that environment, Yeah, marketing and promotion become a potentially full-time job. So I want
1: to talk about the people that you spoke with in the book. But before we do that, just can you tell me how it's been for you? You know, obviously you were motivated to do this book from reporting instincts and just sort of your interest in the zeitgeist more broadly. But you have some skin in the game here. You've published three books over essentially the last decade. What has your life been like in the last couple of years uh, around all of this?
0: Well, you know, I've been really lucky so far, or I would say up until this year, I was very lucky. I got good deals with major publishers. I mean, I mean partly I think nonfiction is easier to sell, but more or at least equally important my work has helped me hit the lecture circuit, especially my previous book, Excellent Sheep about college, led to several years of really good speaking fees. <laughs> I mean, not just good fees, but a lot of work at, at good rates, at, mainly right. at colleges and more recently at high schools. And you know, I, I mean like times were good for me from like 2014 when that book came out for the next few years. And I was very aware that I was lucky and I was very aware that it might not last long. And actually, as we got farther away from the book, the, you know, the speaking gigs kind of died down because you know, now new people were writing really good books about higher ed or about how to raise your kids or whatever. And those people were being invited to those kinds of events. You know, when you write it and people, people who are not self-employed or are not self-employed in creative endeavors don't understand this, it's... One project at a time. I talk about, I mean, your success is one project at a time. I talk about this in the book. Success in the arts, not that I consider myself an artist, but my work is comparable in some ways, you know, structurally, financially. Success always comes with an expiration date because it's, you know, you're not a company. There's no sort of ongoing momentum. So my last book did really well. The whole time I was writing this book, I was acutely aware of the fact that I was potentially writing about my own fate. And no at no moment was that that awareness more acute or more painful than when I wrote the sentence. The extent to which you can just get randomly screwed in the arts is heartbreaking. Cause
1: I'm, <laughs> and not literally. <laughs> That's only for uh, traveling rock and roll musicians. You can get right. you can get literally.
0: Screwed they are getting in. randomly yes. screwed. I yes. like that. Yes, randomly. Uh, right, because you know I, I, I've just been talking about lucky breaks and how like you don't talk about a lucky break in other industries. Like doctors don't get lucky breaks.
1: No, we, not any doctor we would want to go to. I, maybe <laughs> Donald Trump's personal physician got a really lucky break. That's a good point. Got, got that gig, but it's exception that proves the rule. Yes.
0: Yeah. But then I say, you know, sometimes luck can be bad. And publishing a book in the middle of the pandemic, this book came out in July, was definitely an unlucky break.
1: Yeah. You make a point of saying you're not a creative. You just said that just now. You say, I'm a writer, but I'm not an artist. And you say you write non-creative non Why is it important to you to make that distinction?
0: Thanks for asking me that. It's really important for me to make that distinction for two reasons. First of all, I hate the way the words creativity or creative and artist have become, as it were, everybody's birthright. Everybody gets the claim. We were talking about this before. Everybody gets the claim that they're an artist. Everybody gets the claim that their work is creative. I mean, words are supposed to mean something. And being an artist means something, and it's also really hard. And actually, one of the most consistent characteristics of real artists is that they don't like calling themselves artists mm-hmm. because they take the work so seriously. They take the tradition in their art so seriously. They have so much veneration for their role models that they feel that it's a word that really needs to be earned, that really yes. needs to be conquered.
1: There's something cringy about calling yourself an artist. It's sort of like calling yourself an intellectual or, or at least you know, certainly a Absolutely. public intellectual. Absolutely. The real marker of a non-intellectual is defining yourself as such.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And let me also say that the other reason that I insist on saying that I'm not an artist and I write non-creative nonfiction is that I want to claim the value of things other than creativity. I mean, part of the problem with this this sort of veneration of creativity that we've had now for like 20 or 30 years, and it's connected to a lot of this stuff, that also comes from Silicon Valley, like the cult of Steve Jobs, you know, the creative entrepreneur, is that other things have been devalued like intellect and knowledge and thoughtfulness.
1: Let's talk about the people you interviewed in the book. These are writers, musicians, visual artists. Why don't you give some examples of the people you spoke with and what kinds of stories you were hearing and and what kind of artists they were
0: and are. Yeah, um, I spoke with a lot of people, about 140, and I have profiles of a couple of dozen or actually more than a couple of dozen in the book. I mainly focused on younger people under the age of 40 because I wanted to get a sense of what it's like to make your way right now. I do have some older people who could tell me what it was like before. I also made a point of not talking to people I'd heard of because I didn't want to talk to people who were that successful at that point. Mm. So it was harder to find people, but it was really gratifying when I did because I really got a sense of what that life is like in a way that I really never have before. So, there's a musician, uh, she in her fifties, named Nina Nastasia, who is a wonderful folk singer-songwriter. Maybe folk is actually not the best. She's not really categorizable like that. She's been doing it for over thirty years. She and her husband share a two hundred square foot apartment <laughs> in Chelsea.
1: Two hundred square foot
0: in yeah. Chelsea. Yeah. Wow. It's a room with a bathroom. He's also, he's a visual artist. It's a rent control (gasps) department.
1: He's a visual artist? Does he have a separate studio?
0: Right. That's the perfect question to ask me. He works on the bed. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And when he says that she has a studio, he means the bathroom.
1: And I'm also thinking of the moment in the book where you have somebody saying that because of gentrification, gentrification has done away with rock and roll because nobody has the space for a drum kit for a drum anymore. kit, a drum That's set, right. yeah. So they That's just right. they do electronic dance music on their laptops. But okay, I'm imagining this this apartment in Chelsea. Um, yeah, I hope it's rent controlled. But it okay.
0: is it is definitely rent controlled because mar-
1: they're not paying market for this. Okay,
0: <laughs> no, they're not, and they've lived there for many years, and and they they've really lived the life. I mean, I don't want to romanticize sort of. The, the Bohemian myth, but it's also a real thing for some people and and it's been a real thing for them. And they've made it work. They've lived, you know, kind of bobbing back and forth across the poverty line, but having a really deep life in the arts. They tour a lot. They tour in Europe a lot. They've toured in Siberia. And they managed to sort of keep body and soul together until kind of the new the new age came in. And as they put it to me, they're used to being ripped off by the labels, but now they're getting ripped off by their fans. So she told me that she was at the merch table once after, you know, meaning that people don't pay for their music to the extent that she was at a merch table at the merch table once after a show and somebody walked up and picked up a CD and asked if she could just have it. Yeah. Like, can I just have this? Because people are so used to feeling entitled. To getting stuff for free, that even uh, even something that obviously costs money to manufacture, they think they should get for free. So, you know, when I talked to her a few years ago, she really wasn't sure she'd be able to continue in the business. And um, like I said, I mean, you know, she's a musician with a fan base. Like people, the people who know her music love her music. Like it means everything to them. You you know like you've say like the comments on her videos are like you know you've saved my life like right, right. I don't need anything else I just need your music like she's that kind of artist Wow Yeah
1: and you wonder if those fans have any idea how she's actually living The fans would have a higher standard of living than she would easily, I think that's most right. of them You also talk with Kim Deal who is somebody that is pretty well known the indie musician uh, I guess known from the, the Pixies or the breeders. Yeah. Um, how did you find her? And she's a little older, I guess. So what sort of role did she play in your, in your thinking and in your reporting?
0: Kim Deal, you know, this indie rock icon from the Dayton area or from Dayton, now lives back in Dayton in her yeah. 50s because she doesn't make a lot of money. She's doing okay. She told me she's doing okay. When I asked her, you know, how she supports herself now. She hemmed and hawed for literally 20 seconds. And then she said, stuff still comes in, which meant royalties from her old music. They play, I mean, they also still tour sometimes. She's been doing this. She, she's been recording her own music and releasing it on vinyl as singles, I think is what she does and selling it through her own website. My father calls it my hobby. Yeah. Yeah. She's in her fifties, because once you get finished with um, production costs, and if you're using uh, other musicians, if you need to rent a studio, equipment, and then you know just pressing the vinyl and then saddening it out. Yeah, that's the other thing people don't understand. That it's actually a lot less true for people who write books. For you and I, our production costs are very small, but for a lot of artists, production costs are significant.
1: And is she actually like boxing up the records and taking them to the post office and mailing them? How does that work?
0: I have to be honest. I didn't ask her at that level of detail.
1: (laughs) I asked because I have actually, I don't know if this is some sort of like Instagram performance, but I feel like I have seen artists say like, Oh, I'm boxing up the records. I'm going to sign this. I'm going to sign this back when it was CDs. I'm going to sign the CD and I'm going to mail it to you fans. And it is a sort of display of, of grassroots enterprise and I don't know how much of it is symbolic and that's actually what happens.
0: No, no, no. Let me say, I talked to plenty of artists like that. I just didn't, I didn't get those details from Kim deal. It was partly an early interview and I wasn't, I didn't have my game together quite yet. And partly because she's a sort of a funny person who tends to go off on tangents, but I talked to a cartoonist. So here's another person I talked to young cartoonist in Portland, Again, she's a full-time cartoonist. She's got a fan base. She's very productive. She, yeah. She boxes her stuff up. If you want to buy like one of her cartoon, one of her graphic novels that she's put together, she literally takes it to the post office and sends it to you or takes yeah. it to, you know, FedEx and sends it to you. And she told me that she spends 90% of her time running her business and 10% of her time drawing cartoons.
1: Yep. That sounds about right. You say that you interviewed uh, most of these people by phone and that it was actually better than doing so in person. That seems a little counterintuitive on the surface, but can you explain why you think it worked so much better to talk on the phone?
0: Yeah. And I say that because when I started doing the interviews, I did them with a video, you know, a video Skype. And it was really kind of self-conscious. Like, you know, they were too busy paying attention to me. I was too busy paying attention to what they looked like. And I was asking people, you know, really intimate things. I mean, asking somebody about money is more of a taboo than asking them about their sex life, quite frankly. That's right. Certainly. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, certainly talk about writers. There are plenty of writers who talk about their sex life. Very few writers like to talk about their financial lives.
1: Well, it, publicly anyway. I always... You know, obviously, what do do writers talk about when they get together? And I think people who are not writers imagine all sorts of high-minded literary conversations, but it's almost always money. How are you paying the rent? What kind of, you know, what is your agent doing for you? Just that Mm. kind of thing. It's an obsession.
0: Do they talk about their family money? No. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to get to that. I mean, maybe we should get to that now. There, you talk and-
0: Well, just, I mean, so just the point is I was asking yeah. people about things like that, including yeah. their family money as gently as I could. I would say like, so what do your parents do? And like, so you were in New York after college, you know, where did you live? How much did you pay? How did you manage to? And, you know, they would tell me. Uh, sometimes they would ask certain details be off the record. And I found, to answer your previous question, I found that doing that, in an old fashioned kind of phone situation where they didn't, you know, like, like a shrink, the way shrink wants you to face away from them. So they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. so you just kind of get into your own thoughts. It was really moving. I have to say it was the best part of writing the book. I mean, it was really moving to make connections with people like, you know, Nina and her husband. We talked for two hours. It was hard for me to get them off the phone because people want to tell their story. They want to be listened to.
1: And did you find that they were angry? Were they sad? What were the emotional patterns you you detected with people? Were they just exasperated? Was there any hope?
0: You know, I think there was surprisingly little anger or even sadness. Hmm. I think there was a fair amount of anxiety, but I think that there was a lot of determination, a lot of toughness. I mean, you know, not to sentimentalize this either, but I came away incredibly impressed with artists in a a way that I hadn't before. I mean, I knew about talent and I knew about hard work, but like if you've survived in the arts, even to your thirties, you've got to be really, you've got to be a really strong person and you're not going to get knocked down by adversity.
1: Yeah. I thought it was interesting too. You said something like most artists do not have, not only do they not have parents who are artists, they... Often don't have parents who are even supportive. It's almost like having unsupportive family helps you be an artist. Like I thought, I had never thought about it that way, but it kind of makes sense.
0: It's funny. I hadn't thought about that particular thing either. That it actually helps you to have an unsupportive family. I'm, I'm not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a that's a good line for unsupportive parents to lay on their kids when they're being unsupportive. I'm helping you by not helping you.
0: Or for the kids, you know, Mom, you're actually helping me. You don't want me to be an artist, you're actually helping me be an (laughs) artist. That's right, that's right.
1: If you want me to be an artist, then if you, right, exactly. You should take me to all sorts of lessons if you want me to be a lawyer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I started to see these patterns. I have this whole chapter that was sort of my favorite chapter to write called The Life Cycle, because I saw these patterns emerge and I was able to put together a kind of generic biography. And the first sort of way station on that biography is that you always knew that you wanted to be an artist, which is not true in other professions. People, when they're five, don't say they want to be college professors, you know? (laughs) But so many many of the artists I talked to kind of always knew this is what they wanted to do. And then the other thing is this tremendous resistance they get from the world, from their parents, from their schools, from their peers, from their environment. It may be different in other countries, but it's like we've all gotten the memo that if we especially once you're no longer just a kid and now you're a teenager or you're in college. Like, if we run into any young person who says they want to be an artist, we have to mock and shame them. You know, it's, it's even worse than, than majoring in the liberal arts. It's even worse than being an English major. Mm-hmm. And also the schools, I talk about this in the book, I think the schools are not equipped, especially in the age of assessment regimes and teaching to the test and math and science, math and reading, Right. that um, schools are just not equipped to deal with with the gifts, with the abilities of artistic kids. So, there's like the message you get is that you're dumb or you're lazy.
1: Did you find that a lot of these people were good students or not so good students? Did that ever come up?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it didn't necessarily come up. I think it was pretty random. I mean, some of them clearly had been good students and had gone to fancy colleges, and some of them were hopeless in school because they just couldn't sit still for it. I think of, uh, there's a, a, young indie rock musician named, um, Jessica Boudreau, who is from Baton Rouge and, and also lives in Portland. And, you know, she was completely checked out of high school and then she came to Portland to go to Portland state and dropped out after a year or two once she discovered the music scene here. And she was, you know, she was doing fine. Um, professionally, I mean, re- you know, relative to how, you know, what fine means if you're a young indie musician, but I mean, she had a band, she played with other bands. So I think probably that academic sort of academic ability and creative ability are just totally uh, independent variables. Sometimes they go together, sometimes they don't.
1: Yeah, because it does seem like there is a sort of template for a a very successful person who was just really good at one thing or really interested in one thing and almost disastrously bad, uh, in everything else. So I wonder if that was, was coming up in, in any of, any of your conversations. So, okay, let's move on to, uh, to writers. I started with the musicians cause I wanted to make sure we don't spend the entire time talking about writers. You know, I have to say, Especially in the last few years, one one of the consolations of aging uh, for me has been just realizing that I am so lucky to have lived when I did, not saying this in the past tense, but like that I was able to start my career in the early 90s, you know, when there was still a chance. It was kind of the last gasps of institutional support and being able to live Decently, sometimes well, as a, as a writer, and I, I look at people coming up now, and my heart just breaks for them, and I don't know what to say. So what kinds of conversations were you having with, with writers, and what kinds of writers were you talking with?
0: I tried to talk to uh, lots of different writers. I talked to a whole bunch of novelists. I talked to some poets. I talked to a playwright, Claire Barron, who actually she, since I talked to her, she was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. She's wonderful she's tremendously gifted. Claire told me there were years in New York where, I mean, she's still in her 30s, and I probably should not even 35 yet, but there were years in New York where she was living on $18,000. I said, how do you live on $18,000? She said, you live in the basement. You live where the boiler <laughs> is, and it's illegal, so you could get kicked out. Yeah. How do you, she told me all kinds of different ways that she was making a living At one point, she was writing articles about foot deformities to increase the (laughs) page rank of a site called (laughs) oddshoefinder.com. If you have weirdly shaped feet, you go to that site. And I also talk to, I talk about an old student of mine who I I don't mention him by name, but he went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and aspired to write serious fiction. Mm. And then he realized, you know, this is actually not who I am. And what I really care about is craft, to go back to a word we used before. Mm-hmm. And I really like reading young adult novels, but most of them are really crappy in terms of craft. I want to write a young adult novel, as he put it, with a really high thread count. with like a <laughs> lot of literary craft. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's doing now. And he lives in Brooklyn and he, every day he runs into people he knows from Iowa or people he knows from Yale, other writers, and they ask him what he's doing and, when he tells them, they make a great uh, effort to show him that they're not judging him for that, is how he put it to me. Mm-hmm. They really need to reassure him that it's okay. But he's, you know, he's fine. I mean, I think he's made his peace with that. Well, let me just say, I talked to another writer, and, and I want to mention him also because I didn't run my interview sample through the filter of my own tastes. I wasn't just interested in writers who, or, or artists whose work... I like. And the truth is, some of the people I interviewed, I don't think their work is that, well, I'm not going to say it's not good. It's not interesting to me. It's not something that I'm drawn to. So one guy uh, writes horror, and he writes for uh, the platform Wattpad. You know about Wattpad, right?
1: Nope. Never heard of it.
0: Yeah, I'd never heard of it either. Tens of millions of people around the world read the fiction that's posted on Wattpad. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's, it's tens of millions and many, many different languages. Wattpad Tagalog is this huge phenomenon in the Philippines. Oh, okay. Especially because the traditional publishing industry in the Philippines is English language, and that's the language of the elite. And apparently like the Philippine version of Fifty Shades of Grey was published on Wattpad, and then they got a publishing deal for it. It's one of these platforms where you can just post your own content, and it's, bas- it's short stories, basically. And the literary quality is really pretty low, needless to say. In fact, they have all these different generic categories that help you find what you want. And when I went on the site the first time, there were like, I don't know, 100 subcategories, and one of them was literary fiction. One of them was literary. And then two years later, that subcategory was actually gone completely. So it's all like vampires and bad boys and vampire bad boys and mafia and I mean to me it's just kind of the expeditementia of the of the id, right? It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a word. That's a
1: very uh, charitably highfalutin uh, description. Yeah. Uh,
0: really uh, they tend that. to be young writers yeah. uh, and young readers. But this is a huge, I mean, like, you know, if you want to look under the hood and see like how the internet is reshaping culture, this is like this huge global phenomenon that you and I had never heard of. And I talked to a guy who who lives in uh, St. Paul, went to a state university in the upper Midwest, and uh, he makes a pretty good living. It's not his only source of income, but he became a Wattpad star. And that's their, they actually have a star program where they pluck from the millions. They look at their viral numbers like they have been sitting in front of a giant dashboard like the Starship Enterprise, looking at all the dials moving. And they spot him and they see that he's, his story's gone viral. And they offer him a chance to be in the stars program, which gives him the opportunity for like uh, commercial tie-ins with Hollywood. Hollywood is in touch with Wattpad because they're mm. interested. I mean, like Wattpad has its finger on the pulse. They know okay. what people are interested in.
1: So we're the ones that were out of it. So We're out of it. I'm listening to this, are they making money? So answer me that.
0: The Wattpad writers. Yeah. You don't get any money for writing on Wattpad at all.
1: So what the money's going to come from what then?
0: Well, if you're a star, then there are opportunities. Okay. So he's had a a bunch of opportunities, including like embedded ads and product tie-ins. Like when... Hollywood releases a horror film. It gets a Wattpad page. And, like any other profile on Wattpad, it's got a reading list of what the movie is reading, as it were. <laughs> and okay. oh and, uh, and so he so he's been listed on some of those. Like I said, he's not he hasn't been able to quit his job, but it's he's trying to transition to doing this full time
1: okay. So my first question was, are they getting paid? My second question was, did you get a sense that, they are famous enough within this subculture that that in and of itself is satisfying.
0: Absolutely. For a lot of them, that's absolutely the case. I talked, to, I talked to an executive at Wattpad and she said, that's all a lot of these writers want. You know, They want internet fame and they're happy with that. Uh, if they're like a young Filipino woman who's writing R-rated stories under a pseudonym they don't even want to be famous because their parents would kill them.
1: But they're not, ma- they're not getting rich either.
0: So They're not, but you know what? They're not trying to, they're amateurs. Right. right.
1: You know, I, I ask because so like, you know, people like us or at least people like me, you know, when I was younger, I guess even now, you, you know, we, we sort of rationalize our lack of commercial success by the fact, you know, that we're, we get reviewed in the New York times. Like, you know, those people who are write genre, uh, books, people who write thrillers, people in these sort of creative subcultures, that's, that's fine for them. And maybe even occasionally they're making a lot of money. I mean, you know, the Dan Brown books in the airport, I can be jealous of how much, how many copies he's selling, but like at the end of the day, he's not being invited to, you right. know, national book Critics circled award dinner. Right. And, you know, right. there is a whole, there is a sort of, circle of consolation prizes that high-minded, uh, sort of fine artists, uh, get in, in lieu of payment. So I wonder if that as a currency has been diminished, like, do artists even care about that stuff anymore? And if not, is it just because it's not available like it used to be?
0: I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm equipped to answer that question, but what I would say, you know, I mean, at that level of generalization, but what I would say is probably it hasn't changed. I mean, there's this economy of prestige that you just talked about. And people in that world of prestige, people who publish with literary imprints and maybe went to fancy private colleges and are part of the literary community in New York, whether they actually live in New York or not, and have books that are at least submitted for these kinds of prizes and are reviewed in those kinds of places, the Times and the New York or wherever. I mean, I still think that economy of prestige exists just as it always has. It's just that there's, there are other worlds. And those other worlds are much bigger and much more numerous than they used to be. And it's a characteristic of fame. Maybe it's always been a characteristic of fame, but especially in a highly fractured communications environment, that there, as such as we live in now, that there are a million different subcultures. And like there are people who are undoubtedly superstars in the swing dance community, in the figurines of little cats community, Right. That are, you know, and then we just happen to be in the, you know, literary community. And if, if you look at it from a certain angle, they're all just the same kind of community. In any case, I don't think the people who are f- famous in their worlds are jealous of people who are famous in different worlds.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, undoubtedly, some of them are. But I think if you're a Wattpad star and, and your story has been read 50 million times... You know, you might probably haven't even heard of the National Book Critics Circle, just like you and I have not heard of Wattpad.
1: Right, right. And I I should be clear, it's not that the economy of prestige doesn't exist anymore. It certainly does. But it's like, it's coasting on prestige fumes. I I feel like 20 years ago, maybe, you know, 50 to 75% of the people at that kind of event or party would be like living okay, not great, but fairly decently. And now it's hardly anyone. It's such a tiny slice of people in those higher echelons that are really hanging on at all.
0: No, this is a really important point. You're absolutely right. That's the important point, is that uh, it's not just that the economy of prestige was enough to supplement a subsistence income. It's that the economy of prestige also interacted with the financial economy. Right. Right. And if you Had a nomination or 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 won a prize, it would lead to increased sales. It could lead to an academic position. It could lead to a better advance. Now the numbers have gotten so much lower that the advance, the middlest advance, is tiny. Uh, The prizes may not drive many sales. The academic positions are all becoming adjunct positions. That dual economy is falling apart because the financial piece of it is falling apart. And you're not going to accept prestige in lieu of any payment whatsoever. You can't, even if you wanted to.
1: Well, but younger artists are still being sold that. That's, I mean, you're going to you know, do it for the exposure, do it for the prestige. You know, you, you talk about this Authors Guild survey that showed that writing-related income dropped by 47% uh, for those with 15 to 20 years of experience. So in the last 20 years, the, the more experience you have, the more your income is going to drop. So for people with 25 to 40 years of experience, their income has dropped 67%. Yeah. <laughs> so again, given where you are in your career, how long you've been in the game, how does that make you feel personally when you've been successful? <laughs> Like that, you also say there's no plan B at 50. Like you know, it's kind of cute when you're 30 to 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 pivot. And frankly, when when you're 30, you can pivot because you sort of you understand the game more. But like just sitting here, you personally, Bill, like what has it meant for for your life? I know you said earlier that you've been lucky, and so have I. But I don't. I think we would be kidding ourselves if we you know pretended that this wasn't affecting us.
0: Well, let me also say that I didn't start becoming a full-time writer until 2008. So I was a professor before that. I actually had a salary, which is something that I, I barely remember <laughs> what that means all at this point. <laughs> okay. Uh, not, well, not voluntarily, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> okay. So I've only been doing this for 12 years. I, I think, to be perfectly frank, I think I may well be at an inflection point right now because I've had good advances so far, three in a row. My last book did really well this book got buried by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. If it had come out last year, maybe it would have gotten some attention and decent sales, enough to justify the advance and enough to, you know, suggest that for the next project, I would get a a comparably decent advance. That's probably not going to be the case. And obviously, I'm not doing any speaking at all right now. And um, I'm 56. And I'm not exactly thinking about what other career I can pursue, because I'm 56, and because I'm in a position where I don't need to at the moment, but um, I do think that my career might look very different going forward than it has in the last 12 years, and I, but I, in a way that I don't, I'm not really sure about at this point. And, and let me also say that I was doing a lot of freelance writing, actually when I was a professor too, so I've been doing a lot of freelance writing for over 20 years. And I've seen the freelance fees just get worse and worse and worse.
1: Oh, it's unbelievable. There was the person you quoted saying, I, I pay people for a piece. I can't remember the publication.
0: It was Franklin 4 in the New Republic.
1: Right. What they paid in 1930.
0: Right. The same dollar amount. <laughs> yeah. Which is now worth 5% of what it was then.
1: Yeah. Oh, I got paid exponentially more 25 years ago than I get paid now. So- but on that, so you've got people who are writing two, three, four pieces a day. I mean, the Adderall. When you you somebody somebody's talking about you, you ask somebody like, is it true that they're using Adderall? Everyone in New York is taking Adderall to handle the workload required to to churn out this kind of output. I thought, well, no, that's an exaggeration, but apparently not. Maybe this is what I'm doing wrong.
0: <laughs> is, this, is that true? Right. So, I mean, people tended to be cagey. I talked to a lot of young writers in New York and they tended to be cagey. But like I say, I got three kinds of answers. Like, everybody, everybody except me, or <laughs> don't tell anybody, but I do it too. So, you know, I don't know if the people were saying everybody except me were being honest or not, but it seems like pretty much that's what you do now.
1: But is this is like the new cocaine or something?
0: Well, you know, my impression is that that like you know, millennials slash Generation Z, they sort of get introduced to Adderall at a pretty early age in their lives. Yes, yeah, and they just keep going with it. It's not cocaine because they're not I know, having fun. I know. Well, they also can't they're afford not cocaine; having fun. Because they couldn't afford it, <laughs> right?
1: I mean, I, that moment really stood out to me because I can't tell you how often I sort of sit here and beat myself up because I can't work fast enough. It's like I used to be uh, consider myself pretty prolific, pretty productive, like I worked all the time and I still feel like I work all the time. But when I see bylines, you know, coming at me every day, sometimes multiple times a day with the new piece, I think like, am I just like, has my brain physiologically slowed down? Is there something about can I just not do this anymore? And that was remarkable that that detail, if true.
0: Yeah. Well, People have said not just about the arts, but about the internet age in general. I think Jaron Lanier, among others, says this, is a sort of tech visionary who writes these really great books, You Are Not a Gadget, Who Owns the Future. That the economy is such now that it only works if you're young, healthy, and childless. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not young anymore, I mean, how do you how do you yeah? And and there's no and there's no institutional landing pad. I mean, that's the way it used to work. That's the way it's supposed to work. You work like crazy, whether it's Adderall, coffee, or cocaine, when you're in your 20s, and you establish yourself to the to the point where you can get some kind of institutional stability, and that's that's just not really possible for most people anymore.
1: And you know, the other thing we're talking about, obviously, how this affects people's economic lives and their their personal lives, but just in in terms of the quality of the content, in terms of what we read and what now passes itself off as an essay or a quote unquote think piece, they've been reduced to takes. You know, you, you quote a publishing professional explaining how writers are incentivized to take inflammatory positions about divisive issues. And young women in particular are rewarded for writing explicit writing that- confessional pieces, right? And That's like right. you see it again and again, and it's not because that's what people necessarily want to write. It's that they feel like they have to. And when, you know, you get paid by clicks or views, I mean, I had somebody recently say, well, you know, you get paid, not even based on clicks and views, but the amount of time somebody spends reading your piece. (laughs) Well, I need to use really long words or something. I
0: don't know. know. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about when you see a byline shooting at you four times a day, whether that work is any good.
1: I won't read it if it's not good. I mean, I do, I often am in awe of there is a kind of facility with language and an ability to distill what is to me a pretty abstract idea into something that makes sense on the page. I think that like when you're talking about social media phenomena or the entire world of influencers, for instance, which is just something that, doesn't interest me personally. And I don't really know very much about it. I think there's a certain vocabulary that if you have a facility with it, maybe you can churn these things out and they're not like terrible, but I just don't see how it's satisfying. And that, it makes me wonder, like, did you, in your conversations, did, did anyone ever just say to you, like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Not only is it not paying me anything, it's just really boring.
0: You know, the one person I talked to actually said something different. I mean, the one person I talked to who's really living that kind of life, because, like I said, novelists, poets, playwrights, I mean, I read about some of these sort of Adderall fueled um, content, one person content mills. The one person I talked to, who's not a New York writer, named Nicole Deeker, she was living in Seattle at the time. She's moved to Cedar Rapids. She's from small town Missouri. She's gotten into writing mostly personal finance blogs. Writes for lots of different places. And the numbers on her productivity are mind-boggling. She also, because she's such a prolific blogger, she blogs about all of this stuff, too. And uh, in 2016, and I don't think her pace has slowed down much, she took on over 700 assignments and wrote over half a million words. Wow. And... As I point out in the book, that's four times the length of the book, and it's a 350-page book mm-hmm. that I worked on for four years. Yeah. So Nicole Deeker is writing 520,000 words a year, and I asked her how she does it, and I think I, think I may have asked her about stimulants, and she told me that she, she would never do that. She thinks that's tacky. <laughs> tacky, she, okay. I think that's what she said. I think it was her who said that. She's incredibly organized and disciplined. She, her parents are musicians, and she sort of learned that kind of musician's discipline. She's clearly very type A. She's kind of a little tightly wound. I think you just have to have maybe a, a naturally very energetic disposition. And she doesn't have a life. I mean, she wouldn't say that about herself. But, you know, she works all the time. I mean, I talked to her because in between doing all of this, her 527,000 words a year, She actually wrote and self published a two volume novel.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: But she told me that she spent every free minute on it for three years. And really, her relationships with people have really suffered.
1: What did people say about their relationships? You mentioned that a lot of people are, are choosing not to have children uh, because they want to be artists. And the thing that makes it work, I mean, I, I will say for myself, the, the really the the biggest thing that makes my life work as well as it does, which is not great all the time, uh, is that I don't have children. I've got nobody to worry. I don't have parents who depend. I, nobody is dependent upon me other than my enormous dog. But that's really what allows me to do it. So is that something that, that came up? I know a lot of uh, millennials and younger people are talking about choosing not to have children for all kinds of reasons, environmental and otherwise. But what did they have to say about, about this? In terms, Yeah, of their yeah,
0: I did, I did. This did come up a lot. And I should say, I also don't have children and it certainly makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. I talked to a lot of people about this. I talked to the women in particular about this. A very small percentage of the people I talked to Have children. And I break it out in the book by under 40 or over 40 and male and female. Most of the older men had kids. Uh, Maybe a quarter of the younger men had kids. Among the women, only about a quarter of women over 40 who I talked to have kids and only 7% of those under 40. And a whole bunch of them, you know, I, I, I asked them about this and they said things like, when I, decided to get an MFA and become an artist, a visual artist, I knew I wouldn't have kids. Or my career is my baby. Or I've just never been in a position where it was sane and safe for financial reasons to do this. And that was a young musician named Marion Call, who's a self-produced, self-published musician. And she has many, many, many friends who are musicians and writers and artists. And she said of all of her friends, she can only think of one or two who have kids. Young, healthy and childless. I know some people make it work. I imagine it's a hundred times easier if you have a partner and it's a thousand times easier if you have a partner with an upper middle class income. Yeah,
1: I wonder too, I'm just, as I listen to you and I think about the people I know, if you ran into anybody talking about how, you know, if, if there was a couple and they were both, they were young and artistically inclined, it's. I feel like I've noticed that the man, if they do want to have a family, the man will go and get a real job. Like he will give up the artistic aspirations. And then there's a thing that women sometimes do, where they're like, have the kid, and they're going to do their art, or they're going to write their novel, because there is this idea that you can kind of, you know, do it in your spare time, or you can have it both ways. And that sometimes works. It often doesn't. But I, I do feel like I see men giving up on being artists because there is still some pressure to be, you know, financially the the breadwinner.
0: Um, I didn't talk to anyone like that, but it, it does make sense to me.
1: Yeah. It's something, it's something I've, I've seen in people. Yeah. So, okay. This is what I'm still wanting to figure yeah. out though. And maybe there's no answer. <laughs> like what are they getting out of this? Because if you are a writer and I don't mean to keep harping on writers, but this is what I know, like, and you're just, tr- you know, churning out take after take, Oh, I see. what do people, what is the end game? Like, do they want to write a great novel? Do they want to write an amazing memoir? Do they have some story to tell? And this is like, they're just doing this, this hustle in order to, to pay the bills while they wait for this, you know, great project to emerge from within, like, how satisfying can it really be?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know I that you, you mentioned, I talked to this guy who has been Sean Blanda, who has been very involved in sort of the creative industries. He's not a creator himself, but he's, uh, he knows this world very well. And he's the one who was talking to me about writing for clickbait and, and, and how people manage to do it. And I think I, I asked him that. He said, you know, he was talking about people who write for Vice. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Vice is just so sort of glamorous for them. Like they're so into the idea of Vice that they're content to kind of take a shot and live with eight roommates in Crown Heights and on $20,000 a year and write for Vice and crank out content for Vice. It may be that they don't have, you know, creative in the sense of writing a novel aspirations or it maybe they do or it may be that they just don't think about it that they don't have time to think about it i mean one of the themes that came up especially with younger people like that cartoonist i mentioned before who 90% of her time marketing 10% of her time drawing cartoons is that you know you just stagger from one day to the next and you never have time to think about it she said, you know, even if you got a windfall, if some if somebody handed you $50,000, many of the artists I know wouldn't know what to do with it. They wouldn't have
1: <laughs> Well, they they realize they have to pay estimated quarterly taxes for for stuff.
2: Well, no, yeah. but her
0: point was it's not like, oh, I finally have $50,000 to put to the big project that I've been wanting to do. They haven't been, even been able to think about what the big project is. Uh, uh. She actually said what you do is you go to the dentist because you haven't yeah. been in 5 years, you know. You get some health insurance. As she put it, you fill out the bingo card of a healthy lifestyle that you've been trying to fill in the squares on. You take Ugh. a vacation where you're not actually working during your vacation.
1: That is so sad. So a lot of them did not have some sense of like the big project. They don't. That's it's what just you told so, me. so the struggle is just so quotidian and yes. nonstop that they're not thinking about the prize. Wow. That makes me sad.
0: Yes, and and let me say there's a really there's a really good book by an NYU professor named Amy Whitaker. It's called Art Thinking. It's actually a more practical book than the title suggests because it's about how to sort of how to carve out time for creative work in the midst of your creative work. Because mm-hmm. what she says is the problem for at least a working creative, and I, I hate using that as a noun, but the working creative professional, whether that's an artist or some other kind of creator, a designer, is not how to continue making the stuff that you know how to make that's making you some kind of living. It's how to carve out time. She specifically says this, how to carve out time within your financials to dream up the next project. Because as we know, that's a process that can't be done on a deadline, Yeah. right? You can't do that with a gun to your head. You have to be able to get into a space where time doesn't matter, where you're, where time isn't passing in the normal way. You're not watching the clock. How do you do that? That's the big problem.
1: If you're lucky, you go to an artist colony. You go to a place like McDowell or Yaddo, but
0: yes, most people lucky.
1: aren't able to do that. You've written a lot about education. You were a university professor. You have uh, a lot to say about art schools and MFA programs in this book. Tell me where you stand on most of them.
0: Well, I really present different sides of the question. Because I think it isn't a simple answer. So I start that chapter like, should you go to art school? Well, I don't know. And there are arguments on both sides. Some people think it's a waste of time. Some people think you can get really valuable things from it. Some artists told me that, oh my God, this one independent filmmaker who did not grow up with a lot of money, she did her MFA at Columbia and it was the best experience of her life. It enabled her to find her voice as a filmmaker. About 10 years later, she has $225,000 of debt mm. mm-hmm. because whatever she graduated with has just been accumulating. I think she pays like 50 something dollars a week or 50 something dollars a month.
1: She's just paying the interest.
0: She's just paying the minimum, exactly. Yeah. But she, she doesn't regret it. She says, I just try not to think about the money. Right. So I talk about all the good reasons to go to art school. I talk about, really... The issue is, how is art school gonna help you make a living when you get out? That's really what that chapter is about. Like right. we've laid out like this whole economy, and then the question is, is art school are art schools helping their students or not? The strong impression I got is that they're not. They don't know they don't want to think about the the career piece. It's uncomfortable. They don't know how. I mean, if you've been a film professor for 30 years, you probably don't know what you need to do right now. <laughs> right. You know they they have sort of psychological and intellectual blocks towards thinking about it. You know, just do your work and you'll you'll get discovered. There's plenty of room for good people in this business, which is total bullshit.
1: That's what Steve Martin says in his masterclass. Uh, oh my god, uh, that's exactly you're, right. I love your you're very uh, you're hard on Steve Martin.
0: Yeah, well, he deserves.
1: it. Very few are, so that's your he
0: deserves game. it. I think he's overrated, <laughs> but um. Look, it's also what they told us in graduate school, and in, in, you know, when I was getting my PhD in the '90s, like, oh, there's plenty, there's always good room in this profession for right. good people the, who work The dream will
1: rise to the top. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Because these are people you talked about how we started our careers in the '90s. Uh, those professors that started their careers in the '60s, where things were great, and they refused to adjust. And I think a lot of art professors, art school professors, are like that. And then I talk about some programs that are doing various different kinds of things to help, actually help prepare their graduates. And this is a hard needle to thread. The easy thing is either to ignore the problem or to turn your art school into, tra- into a trade school. So the School of Visual Arts in New York, 20 years ago, they had four, four master's programs in fine arts, and now they have 22 master's programs, and the others are not in the fine arts. They're in various sort of market-facing kinds of disciplines
1: hmm Do you think that's a good thing?
0: No, I don't think it's a good thing at all. Look, I mean, first of all, it's not clear how much these, these programs really equip you for the job market, whether they give you a return on investment. I mean, and that's really the judge of a hardcore vocational program. I mean, if we're not talking about painting. It's like, is there a return on investment for this large amount of money you're asking me to pay or not? Has this master's program been well thought through? If this is a program that's trying to surf the waves of the market, is it going to become obsolescent three years from now? There's an art school in Portland that tried to do this too, and they've just been a, they just had to sell themselves to a local university because it was a complete fiasco. Hmm. So that's also easy, at least from the school's perspective. Turn yourself into a trade school. Sell out to, to commerce, to the market. Invite the corporations in to tell you what they want your students to be. The hard thing is to thread the needle between those two extremes, to teach your students to be artists and then to teach them or to start to teach them how to make some kind of living doing what they really care about, how to identify that little segment of the market. And it can also be foundations. It can be the nonprofit market that's going to help them sustain themselves
1: mm-hmm.
2: and
0: give them the tools to go out and manage their careers.
1: There is this phenomenon I've noticed lately of an MFA. I mean, I have an MFA, and actually, it. Did, I and I went to Columbia and got an enormous amount of debt, but it actually paid off in the end. First, because I was I was lucky and was able to get some book advances. But I can also teach. Like there is this idea uh, in some places where you, you shouldn't really be teaching graduate students unless you have an MFA. Or now you can get a PhD in creative <laughs> writing. I don't know yeah. if that's true in, in visual arts and other places, but yeah. I see a lot of published authors. People have multiple books. People are very successful, well known. Going back and getting MFAs in like low residency programs, for instance, so that they can then go teach in another MFA program. And it's like, I, is this just a self fulfilling prophecy? Like, I,
0: <laughs> or a, it's a Ponzi scheme?
1: Yeah, that's another it's way of putting scheme. it. Yes, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, part of the problem with art schools is just how many of them are, there are. Right. And one of the reasons that there's so many is because the MFA has become this indispensable teaching credential. And I didn't know what you just told me that published writers actually have to go, you know, serious multiple Mm -hmm. book. Even then they have to get the goddamn MFA to prove that they, that they're capable of teaching. Yeah. I mean,
1: I don't know that they have to, but I cannot tell you how many uh, people I know, friends of mine. Uh, yeah. Who are just, you know, working writers. They're getting into middle age. They want a job. Uh, But they can't get it because they don't have the MFA. So that's why you see all these low residency programs.
0: I didn't know that. Like Warren Wilson, things like that.
1: Yeah, they're popping up all over the place. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's a mix of people taking them. There are a lot of these, you know. Published authors, and I'm sure they're like the stars of the program. It's like you really want to right. want to you know right. show up. I mean, I went went to Columbia. There was um somebody who had already published. There were a couple of people who had like already published a book, like or something, yeah. or were in in the had a short story in the New Yorker that week that we were starting wow. the program. And it's like okay, but yeah. So there are those people in these low res programs, but also a lot of you know mostly women, middle aged people, really. Starting Plan B. Actually, they are. They they have a memoir they want to write, or you know, they've raised their kids. Their kids are out of the house. They've you know s- decided to retire or switch careers somehow, and they're doing it for the love of it. And they they want to get the MFA. They want to be able to work with teachers and and have classmates and peers. And I, I I get that. I actually get that if they're willing to to pay and put in the work, okay. But it does. You're right. It does start to feel like a business model. And these are the customers more than, you know, just, you know, preparing a a new generation of artists to create the art in our world.
0: Yeah. I mean, the truth is I, I, I don't have a problem with that latter sort of somebody who's just interested in, and not at all and has the money to pay. Right. The, The real, the real thing, the thing that makes it a Ponzi scheme is that you're my impression, I mean, you, you've implied, you, you implied this. My impression is that you need an MFA to get a teaching job now.
1: Well, and I'll actually—you actually, you need, sometimes you need a PhD. I'm not well, kidding you. Well, this is
0: ridiculous writing. credential creep now. Now you have to yes. get a PhD. It's, I mean, first of all, it's incoherent. The PhD, by definition, is a research degree. There shouldn't <laughs> be such a thing as a PhD in creative writing. You actually
1: need an MD now. You need a medical degree in, in creative writing
0: to, yeah. to go on. No, yeah. But the point is like, okay, so you have to get an MFA to teach. MFAs are extremely expensive. Maybe you're going to pay or borrow $100,000. And then what kind of teaching job are you going to get if you get a job? The overwhelming number of jobs now are adjunct positions. So you're being yeah. you're going to be asked to pay off $100,000 in debt, $3,000 at a time. Because that's what an adjunct or $4,000 or $5,000, that may be what you get for a class as an adjunct professor. That's yeah. really what's inexcusable. And the schools, I mean, frankly, I think a lot of art schools should just go out of business. And some of them are going out of business because because their business models are failing and even before the pandemic. But the system has just been wildly overbuilt. I mean, these programs have multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. They're now like 120,000 arts graduates every year. I mean, most of them are BFAs, but over 20,000 MFAs. And especially since 2008, uh, application numbers have plummeted. Which means, since schools do not want to downsize, maybe they can't downsize because of all the debt they've taken on to build the facilities, Mm -hmm. that uh, admissions rates have soared. And anybody, they'll take anybody.
1: So what do you say to a young person who comes to you for advice? I imagine many of them do. They certainly come to me, whether they're my students or just people who write to me. I often feel like I can't, I have absolutely no idea how to advise people. I mean, because again, it's this, you know, the business has changed so radically. I mean, I've talked about this in my own work, like generation X, we are the first generation to be obsolete before we're even old. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I, I don't know what I did is irrelevant to somebody who's 23. So how do you handle that kind of request for advice or mentorship?
0: Yeah, this is what I would say. The truth is, since the book just came out recently, I haven't heard from a lot of young artists yet. I really thought about this, and it's, and it's partly based on what I said earlier about when you were talking about the life cycle and how young artists are discouraged. What I would say is you should go for it. You should go for it because if you don't go for it, you'll regret, you may regret it the rest of your life. You may be bitter and angry later that you let your parents' browbeat you into a safer path. But you must go into it with eyes open. You must know how tough it's going to be. You can't expect that you're going to make it, that you're going to be discovered, that you're going to be winning Sundance at the age of 25. You must understand how difficult it's going to be financially. And also, you must be prepared to change careers when you're 30 or 35. Give it a shot. If you really feel called to do it, if you really feel like this is who you are, This is what you have to do, which is what all of these artists told me. This is who I am. I knew this is who I was from an early age. Then at least give it a shot. But be prepared for what you're going to face and be prepared for the fact that, you know, once you give it your shot, you may realize that it's not going to work out. And deciding not to be an artist is as legitimate and often as difficult and brave a decision as deciding to be an artist in the first place is. Hmm.
1: Do you think they need to live in New York or Los Angeles? I'm thinking of Nina and her husband. Do they really need to be living in New York in that 200 square foot apartment in Chelsea?
0: Well, they at least have rent control, right? I mean, that's probably okay. the one good thing. I'm not, but, okay. but look, but I still, mean- still,
1: 200 square yes. feet.
0: Yes. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, it's almost monkish. You know, you take a vow of poverty. I mean, I think that's really what it is. And that's them. They're special people. Um, but your question is is, I think of all of the questions. I mean, I went into these interviews, very open-ended, open- mind. Just tell me about your life. The one question really that I always made a point of asking was this question. I thought this was a really important question to figure out. Do you have to live in New York or l a? Because the propaganda is internet, you can live anywhere. That's right. Yes. and The overwhelming consensus was you have to live in New York or LA or Chicago or maybe a couple of other places. It depends on your industry, at least when you're young and establishing yourself.
1: I would not have thought that. Is that right? I wouldn't have thought that. I thought that we were past that. I mean, I, yeah, I'm interested. That's, I'm surprised. I mean, at least there is a, it may be true. It sounds like it is true, but I think there is a mythology. That, that sort of logic is, is obsolete now. So what, what is it about They're still, they still feel that going to a cocktail party and rubbing elbows with the right people leads to opportunities that you don't get in Dayton?
0: Yes. Broadly speaking, that's right. These are still face-to-face industries. Hmm. I mean, in, if you're in film or television, there's no question. I don't think anybody, you know. Right. But it, writing is concentrated in New York. So your connections are going to be in New York. You're going to be able to meet with people face to face. You're going to be able to get jobs. Christine Smallwood, right, the writer and editor, uh, said to me, you know, (laughs) people think that the magazine world is just, we all go to the same cocktail parties. And, and, you know, it's actually true. That is what it is. (laughs) I mean, I talked to some people who established themselves and then left. Yeah. You can do that. But try to establish yourself. You know, or the visual arts, which are also concentrated in New York, LA, Chicago. How are you going to do that from from Dayton?
1: Right. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, so I did not have my big, big break as a writer until I left New York. And that was because I was able to sort of package myself as like the weird person who left. I was here in my 20s. I was in New York City in magazines, freelancing, hustling, doing every possible thing, writing ad copy Vitamin bottle labels, everything. And then I was so broke. I was, I mean, I've written about this. I was $80,000 in debt, mostly from MFA, but also from not having health insurance and et cetera. And I moved to Nebraska when I was 29. Yep, I did. And because it was cheap, A, and B, I had this like prairie fetish. I always loved um, that kind of landscape. Austere landscape, and I just was was intrigued by it. I had gone. I was doing a lot of magazine freelancing, and this was a time where they would fly you around. You could do, you know, your, your reporting assignments, etc. And I had gone out there to do some kind of assignment, and I just loved it. And I thought, wow, gosh, it's like people are are cool here, and you can have a a cute little house, and it's got hardwood floors, just like those apartments on the Upper West Side that I covet, but it costs, you know, four hundred dollars. So I just randomly moved there.
0: Were you in Omaha or were you like really out on the prairie?
1: Yeah, no, this is like, I moved to Lincoln and I didn't know anybody. And it was like a dare. I dared myself and everyone thought I would be back in six months. And I thought, well, okay, six months to a year. And I ended up staying there for four years. And the funny thing was, you know, I had been a working freelancer in magazines for the better part of a decade. And as soon as I moved to Lincoln, my phone would not stop ringing. Everybody wanted me to write about this thing that I had done. This was the height of the mm. simplicity movement. Remember that? It was all mm-hmm, about like mm-hmm. cleansing your life and, you know, buy this $500 wastebasket and it will cleanse. Right. And so this was fit nicely into that narrative. And So I had, yeah, suddenly I was able, I was doing those um, commentaries on NPR, like on morning edition and such. And I had, that was like, to me, that was the ultimate goal. Like in my twenties, like if I could just be an NPR commentator, I will have made it. And I had tried and tried and I used to make demos when I was living in New York and I could never get anywhere. The second I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, they made me a regular commentator and I wrote a novel. I, I already, I had published one Book. It was a book of essays. It was with an independent publisher, uh, so I did have that. But then I, I wrote a novel while I was there, and it was inspired by the experience, and that was what did it. it. I got a big advance. It had the you know movie option that, of course, never went anywhere. But I floated off that for several years. Right. So, but I to your earlier point, it never would have happened if I had not established myself in New York right. to begin with but it's the reason I said I was surprised that people are still saying that they feel that they need to be in New York or LA is because I thought that the internet had sort of obviated that logic, but, but I guess not. So that's interesting. Uh,
0: No, I mean, really not. I mean, I did talk to a few people who uh, don't aspire to that kind of career. They're happy to have like a community based career,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, in one lives, one lives in uh, Juneau and, but yeah, I mean, really, I mean, this is a myth that, that, I mean, because it makes sense, right? It sort of makes sense that you, sh- you shouldn't have to live anywhere in particular. But when you really look at it, it's these industries are so face-to-face. And, you know, it's not just context. It's also creative stimulation. Yeah. That same writer I mentioned, a former student who's now writing young adult novels who lives in Brooklyn, he says, you know, Brooklyn uh, makes me try harder. <laughs> um You know, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm measuring myself against the people around me. Yeah. You know, a young, a young spoken word poet back to Baltimore after college. And then within a couple of years, he also moved to Brooklyn and said, you know, I was just blown away by the, you know, he lives in a place with like, like a duplex with like six or seven other people in Brooklyn and they're all artists. They're all creators. And it's just so incredibly stimulating. And also that, that connection thing. Uh, He had wanted to apply for some kind of Young Poets Fellowship, and it was just this idea, this this thing he knew about. And um, one of the current fellows walked into his apartment one day because they happened to be a friend of one of his roommates. That's the kind of thing that happens when you're in a creative center. Right.
1: Yeah. No. That's true. And I think just having face to face conversations. I mean, as a nonfiction writer, no, you're a you're a creative non creative. Is that what you said? You're, oh, you write create. What is it? Not creative. Creative. Non creative. Non creative. Okay. Right, all right, right. Well, whatever you want. Whatever you say. But yeah, as an essayist and as a person who is really you know much better at idea than that it's story. I. I get so much fuel out of having conversations with people, like hashing out ideas and kind of trying things out and thought experiments and like, hey, what do you think of this? This is this like weird idea I just had. Am I off? And so again, I was like sort of harboring this idea that people don't get together face-to-face as much, not because of COVID, just in, over the last several years, so many interactions are taking place on screens and there's a sort of flattening effect. And so people aren't able to kind of hash out ideas with a kind of nuance and dimension that might allow them to write something actually interesting or surprising. So I'm glad to hear that, that people are not just relying on their screens for relationship and, and conversation.
0: Right. But of course, the downside to that is that you have to pay rent in these places. Right. I mean, I talk about this in the chapter about rent and space and gentrification. Yeah. And, you know, basically what I say is that artists can't afford to live where artists live. That's the paradox we're at. Yeah. Uh, You have to live in New York or L.A. or Chicago. You can't afford to live there. So what do you do? Well, you know, you live in the basement or... You luck into something or you have family money that you don't talk about.
1: Yeah, well, there was that also another remarkable moment. I think somebody said, or maybe you said, there's like almost no such thing as a theater director who's not from money, who doesn't have family money.
0: That was Claire Barron, the one who's been nominated for a Pulitzer. She said that to me, mm-hmm. that, you know, you, you know, you need to put on like 10 shows before you get uh, famous. And how much, how are you going to do that? She couldn't think of a of a single prominent indie theater director who didn't didn't come from a lot of money. And then she also described what it took her to mount a show in Bushwick of her own work a few years ago. The budget for the show is $24,000. Yeah. She got grants for like half of that and finding the other $12,000 was it just it was it was horrifying. When Sam Shepard died, I was reading about this and about the the you know that that theater scene downtown. That he landed in in the early sixties. Yeah, uh, they were putting on plays like at the Judson Church for thirty seven yeah. fifty, <laughs> and he was splitting a cold water flat in the East Village with I believe with Charlie Mingus's son, and they were splitting a rent of like twenty five dollars, or maybe they were t- paying twenty five each. Yeah, and even if you multiply by inflation, it's about eight to one. Think about it. So the equivalent of three hundred dollars to put on a play. And now Claire Barron, for the equivalent kind of play, needs $24,000.
1: So what do the next few years look like to you? How do you imagine yourself having to pivot or change or sort of change what you're doing or change your, your outlook? What are you afraid of and, and what do you
0: hope for? You mean me personally?
1: Yeah, you personally.
0: Oh, oh boy. Well, I'm afraid that I won't be able to get Uh, another book deal with a commercial, with a mainstream publisher. But isn't Um, every,
1: okay, hang on a second though, but isn't every book, that's a COVID problem. Isn't like every book sort of not selling unless it has to do with- Yes, but I
0: don't know if, you know, I don't know if there's going to be an asterisk on my next proposal that says, listen, when you look up my sales figures for my last book, remember that I published in 2020, I took the hit for you. I was willing to, you know, go out there, uh, hit the beaches in Normandy when, at a time when we knew artists were getting, writers were getting slaughtered. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to count. I hope so. I don't know. Okay. You've made me feel a little better just now, but I don't know.
1: No, I don't know. I think everybody, I feel like this is, this is a little time out, but I mean, the COVID notwithstanding, the e- look, I mean, I have published six books. I had a book come out a year ago. It was a very different publishing experience than in the past. I did so many podcasts. I'm not going to say I did nothing but podcasts, but, you know, I did a couple NPR, I did like a small book tour, but it was just a very different, the texture of the launch was just very different than in the past. And the speaking gigs, well, you know there's a whole bunch of factors there, but yeah, the, the, the COVID asterisk is is one thing, but I just think in general, it's changing. So yeah, like somebody like you, you you are established, you know, but you still. I mean, we still have to like. We may be middle aged. Yes. Lower middle aged. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Lower middle class and early
0: middle age. Yeah.
1: But you know, I feel like I still have to think like I did in my twenties, even more so. Like the hustle never stops. So, like, what does your hustle look like now, and how do you imagine it a few years from now? Is my question.
0: Well, certainly you just described the rollout that I'm having for this book now. It's a million podcasts. It's a few. I had a virtual book tour. I'm still doing events here and there and a little bit of radio. And I imagine, you know, that that's sort of going to be the future. I mean, each each book that I've written, I've, I have three commercial books now and each one, there's more and more of this and the landscape kind of landscape changes Um, No one's even suggesting that I sort of do a live Twitter blah blah, which thank God I never had to do. That was going to be for my first book. I think it's going to be hustling for freelance work, and it may be that in a couple of years I decide that I really need to start doing commercial writing, which I really don't want to have to do. But that it may come to that. Commercial writing meaning what? Like business writing. Hmm. There's a writer I talk about who who writes, uh, you know, creative nonfiction, memoiristic short pieces. And she supported herself writing for, her dad was in tech years and years and years ago in Silicon Valley, before it was even called Silicon Valley. She's in her 50s too. And that was her um, entry into doing writing for corporate clients. You live in
1: Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Was that a decision? Did you move there because it would be easier to do the work you want to do or did you just happen to land there?
0: My wife and I just happened to land there. I mean. I crapped out of academia as mentioned earlier
1: very mysteriously we'll save that for another okay another conversation
0: <laughs> and um we had spent uh my my last sabbatical in portland because we had friends there and portland at least back then was a very easy place to fall in love with it's changed a lot and it was either going to be new york where i lived for many years or portland and you know we, we were living in New Haven. We we had a house, we had a backyard. And the idea of going back to New York and living in a 200 square foot apartment or a 6 or 800 square foot <laughs> All
1: apartment. the 200 square foot apartments are taken though. You know, That's right. It'd be That's realistic. Right.
0: So you know, so we went we went to Portland and I mean especially starting out as a freelance writer in my 40s and knowing that my my income would be very uncertain, I thought living in New York. I mean it's not just rent, the city's really expensive. I thought it would be wiser to be here. And I also thought, I mean, to be honest, I wanted to get away from the East Coast establishment. I mean, especially like the Ivy League academic establishment, but um, I'm happy not to be immersed in the New York literary scene. <laughs> maybe I don't know what I'm missing and maybe it would be very enriching, but I just feel like it's going to be too, it's like too much of a psychological drag. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? You're immersed in the New York literary scene.
1: Well, I don't, li- I don't live in Brooklyn. I live in Manhattan, which means I am not in the New York literary establishment.
0: Is that right? Is that really true? Manhattan
1: is over. Yeah, I, don't, I flunked out of Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn for like six months when I moved back. I've only been back for about five years. I was in Los Angeles for a really long time, but um, yeah, I like I kind of like my little hideaway in Upper Manhattan. But
0: <laughs> yeah, but you're not. So you're not going to the cocktail parties.
1: Uh, no, it's a really, occasionally I do, but it's usually a, a long, a long, long subway ride. So it's okay. When, you know, you've got to want seen one cocktail party. You've seen them all <laughs> for that season anyway. Well, Bill, thank you for speaking with me and congratulations on the book. I know you think it might be your last book, but I found it really captivating and it just felt really important. So I was kind of, thank I you. was joking when I said it, it made me distressed, but it also made me feel vindicated. Like, well, it's not just me. I'm not just somehow like failing at this. This is really a sort of collective and global phenomenon. So I found it comforting as well as distressing. And I think, uh, I think it has a long life and uh, oh. is, really, is really relevant beyond just artists, just in terms of the way people think about what they want their lives to be like, you know, oh, nice. and the choices that we all make. So anyway, thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: That was my interview with William Derezhiewicz. The death of the artist, How Creators Are Struggling to Survive in the Age of Billionaires and Big Tech was published this summer by Henry Holt. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, preferably positive ones. This is an especially good time since for some reason, Apple had the show in the wrong category for like three months. It's now in the correct category, society and culture, and we can move the show up in the ratings if you rate it. As always, you can also support the podcast by joining the Patreon page at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. Also, as always, I'll be back in a week with another spectacular guest who I'll announce soon. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time.
3: Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club.
0: Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway.
3: In Monroeville, Pennsylvania. They tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24 7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1 888 RECOVERY today. That's 1 888 RECOVERY.